Gardner, and this is the Reclaiming the Garden podcast. Today, we have our first Bible Dyke deep dive. We are going to be getting down and dirty with scripture, and today we start at the very beginning, Genesis. Yes, we're going to be going into Genesis 1 and 2 and little bits of 3, perhaps, which is mainly the creation story and the fall of mankind. Um, This is a story that has been interpreted a whole bunch of different ways. Some people take it as literal truth as to how the world was created. Some take it as allegory for other things. Um, But we wanted to just share our perspective as well as the context of when Genesis 1 and 2 were written. Yeah, and before we sort of uh, dive deep into that, uh, we're going to talk about what the Bible is to us as progressive Christians. As a progressive Christian now, I think the Bible has many different uses for it. I don't take the Bible literally, though I do take it very seriously. Um, I think that the Bible can be used as history. It can be used as lessons. It, Especially the Gospels, it's a huge um, part of my faith, um, the preachings of Jesus. Um, but I don't think the Bible is an all or nothing. I don't think all of it is pure fact in history. I don't think all of it, there are lessons to be learned or laws to follow because some of those would probably be very questionable nowadays. Um, I do think a lot of it, yeah, I think a lot of it is representation for things that happened 2,000 years ago. And I think even if it's something that didn't literally happen and is an allegory or a metaphor, it really gives us a glimpse into how people were feeling back in the day, which I think is really cool. Yeah, um, honestly, for me, um, in talking about like what the Bible is to me, I wanted to just straight up quote from uh, Rachel Held Evans' A Year of Biblical Womanhood. We're recording this on May 3rd, which is uh, the day before, two years since um, Rachel Held Evans' passing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in a way, I feel like this episode is sort of a tribute to her since uh, Genesis 1 through 3 is a text that she really struggled with. Um, And in general, you know, she was someone who very much wrestled with the Bible as we're sort of doing now. Uh, So here's what she says in Era of Biblical Womanhood. The Bible isn't an answer book. It isn't a self-help manual. It isn't a flat, perspicuous list of rules and regulations that we can interpret objectively and apply unilaterally to our lives. The Bible is a sacred collection of letters and laws, poetry and proverbs, philosophy philosophy and prophecies, written and assembled over thousands of years in cultures and contexts very different from our own, that tells the complex, ever-unfolding story of God's interaction with humanity. Beautifully put. <sighs> Damn. Could, honestly, could not have said it better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like when we're trying to say that this, this is inerrant and that I'm just going to go ahead and read another quote. In an attempt to simplify, we try to force the Bible's cacophony of voices into a single tone to turn a complicated and at times troubling holy text into a list of bullet points that we can put into a manifesto or creed. More often than not, we end up more committed to what we want the Bible to say rather than what it actually says. Absolutely. I think even in that book, she says, like, if someone says that they've read the whole Bible and understand it, I'm convinced they've never actually read the Bible because yes. there's no way you can have like an, there's no one understanding or one universal understanding of what the Bible is. That's why there's so many denominations out there, because we can't all agree on how to interpret the Bible. Yeah, so as we as we approach the biblical text, our goal is to try to show the more diversity of uh, beliefs and perspectives that you can, you know, read it into a text instead of just reading it from like your own social location and standpoint. Let's just go ahead and dive in. The first thing that we sort of want to talk about um, when we're talking about Genesis, is that Genesis 1 and 2 are two different accounts of creation. Yes. And, you know, I remember learning that, like, almost four years ago now, um, Mm -hmm. when I took my uh, Intro to Hebrew Bible class in college. And, of course, at the time, I freaked out because I was, you know, still still very much an evangelical at that point. And it was like, oh, if these are two different accounts, what does that mean for what I believe about, like, what I believe about creation and what I believe even just, Mm -hmm. like, about the Bible? Um... You know, because of course, like we, I mean, or at least I was definitely taught, I I mean, I'm sure this might be similar for you, Mm -hmm. you know, Genesis 1 and 2 are very much a coherent narrative. Like, that the humanity that is created in like the end of Genesis 1 is sort of, it just sort of goes on and it's like, oh yeah, now that humanity is created, here's Adam and Eve. And it's like, no, but like they, these were written by two different groups of people. Very happy. Like... Yeah, like, I think similarly, um, Genesis 1 and 2 were never quite differentiated. It was just like, 
yeah, this is the creation story. Now let's get to Adam and Eve and the fall of mankind. Like, it never, like, I didn't even realize that they were two separate creation stories until way later in life. When you look at it, it's in a different order. The way that God creates things is in Mm -hmm. a different order. Actually, almost the exact opposite, because humanity is created last in Genesis 1, and humanity is created first in Genesis 2. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're, they're offering, like, from the same sort of worldview and cosmology, but, like, slightly different perspectives on, like, how the creation is happening. Like, God is a lot more relational and, like, hands-on in Genesis mm-hmm. 2, like, actually breathing into the living being, whereas God just kind of, like, creates, 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 and, like, not, you know, it's sort of detached in Genesis yeah. 1. And we're sort of, I mean, at least I'm bringing this up because I think that mm-hmm. this, like, coherent narrative framework undergirds a lot of the harmful literalist theologies that some people use this text to support, which we are going to get into this, you know. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We chose, you know, we very much chose this text because we know that, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about it. It's, and people questioning, you know, this text is like, uh, you automatically get labeled as like a heretic or like as someone who's just cherry picking or like, you know, liberal Christian, you know, this is like, mm-hmm. this is the, the foundation. And so if you question it, you get, you get ostracized. And it's like, no, we need room to question and be able to wrestle with this text. Yeah, absolutely. And I think taking Genesis literally like that really just does a disservice to the deeper meaning of the text that we can glean in a way like and what I've learned, and we'll keep talking about this, of course, is there is such a deeper meaning than just God created the world in six days. Like, there are so much more meaning to it than just that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, once I was, yeah, once I was able to actually see past that sort of, like, surface level view, I was able to see so much more. Um, One other sort of thing that we want to talk about before really going into, like, some of those misconceptions and such. I mean, well, this is actually, yeah, wait, no, this is a misconception. Yeah. Genesis. Um, (laughs) We're getting started. (laughs) Yeah, um, Moses did not directly write Genesis. Uh, in my church, it was taught that like, well, okay, I was given like a sort of a few different paths, but like no matter what, like basically, mm-hmm. you know, it was like either, either like the the story was passed down to Moses or like, you know, there's of course the view that literally like it just was dictated to Moses, you know, fell down from the sky, like yeah. Yeah, I guess there was just this view that, like, maybe no matter, even if it started out as oral tradition, it was, like, a specific one person that wrote it. It's sort of the view that yeah. I learned. Yeah, that's what yeah. I learned as well, was that, yeah, Moses wrote the first four or five books of the Bible. And it actually kind of blew my mind to learn that he didn't, because that's what I'd always been taught. I guess it, it does make sense, because there's so many different accounts, but I always was taught that Moses wrote those. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that, you know, probably the Hebrew scriptures weren't written down until the reign of King David, mm-hmm. uh, which is obviously pretty long after Moses' time. Yeah, and um, the actual books of the uh, the Hebrew scriptures, uh, which, you know, some people say the Old Testament, we're going to say Hebrew Bible or Hebrew scriptures on this podcast, yeah. they came from anonymous different sources. Um, and so G- Genesis 1 is from what is like, uh, from what is called the priestly source and Genesis 2 from the Yahweh source. Uh, I'm going to put information in the show notes to learn more about the different sources since that Mm -hmm. would be too long to go into. But yeah, basically scholars have like, you know, when they look over the sources of the Hebrew Bible, they see like some similarities in the way that some parts are written. Uh, And so they, they sort of decide together that like this, the, you know, they see different sources and threads uh, that they, the texts come from. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I was reading in my research as well is that many people who are Jewish, because Genesis is part of the Hebrew Bible and it's part of the Torah, um, is that many of them believe that Moses wrote wrote it symbolically. Like, yeah, like, you know, these are the texts of Moses, but it's not an actual, like, core belief that is held. Like, Moses literally wrote this down. It's seen as much more of a symbolic yeah, gesture. It's in the tradition, you know, and it's yes, exactly. It's about it's about the the Israelite people, mm-hmm. uh, in, including Moses. But yeah, it was likely that some of these sources came from like you know collective oral storytelling and like collective mm-hmm. writing from scribes as well. Yeah, because again, it the specifics don't necessarily matter. It's more of the story of deliverance and creation and how that we have covenant with God. The details of like who wrote it and which interpretation do we listen to? And is it literally, like, it doesn't necessarily matter. It's more like, what is the bigger picture in all of this? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, and also, I think when I first started to learn like things like this about how the Bible actually came together, I, you know, like I started to get a bit nervous about its very human, messy, you know, mm-hmm. like creation. But you know, actually, that's kind of it's like it's a good thing, you know, because the Bible is like it is humans interacting with the divine, and so yeah, we don't have to be afraid of what the Bible actually is. We can just read it and look at it on its own terms. Yeah, and the way I see it too is a lot of people do say that the Bible is inerrant because even if it was written by man, it's inspired by God and it was dictated by God so it can't have any error. But the way I see it is how many times have people done questionable things in the name of the divine or people Mm -hmm. get things wrong? Like God doesn't necessarily intervene every time we get something wrong about them or about our own humanity there could have very well been errors in the Bible and that's okay. Again, it doesn't take away from the true message or what or what I believe personally, it doesn't take away from that. We're gonna go ahead and get into the big misconceptions about mm-hmm. uh, the text. And then of course offer our sort of new perspectives and why, you know, like the fact that evangelical theology is basically like about um, it is a it, in the way that evangelists read this text. The text is about gender roles and complementarianism, gender identity, uh, sexuality, the history of the earth, and why evolution is wrong, uh, the introduction of the devil. All of those things are some of the big concepts that evangelicals read into Genesis, and it's like, no, you're missing the fucking point. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so we are going to, I mean, we are going to briefly, like, sort of explain, you know, some of those perspectives for folks that maybe aren't familiar with the way that evangelicals read Genesis, and then we're going to talk about how we can, you know, sort of reinterpret those things. So let's start off with gender roles and uh, what is known as complementarianism. Yes. That, you know, men and women are um, created equal, (laughs) quotes, um, uh, quote unquote, but... Uh, that they have different roles. And these roles um, are apparently clearly established in uh, both Genesis and then what, of course, you know, things in the New Testament that we will that we will wrestle with later. We're going to talk about Yeah, that, that's another day. <laughs> Complementarianism, it's, again, that belief that men and women are equal. And again, I'm saying men and women because this is how it is seen as the two gender yes, binaries. it's very, very, yeah. very binary. A very it's binary. a very gendered um, perspective on things where, yes, they're equal, but they have separate roles. So the man has to be the provider for the family and go out and and work while the woman, and the leader, absolutely. And the woman stays home and takes care of the kids and takes care of the house. And just, you know, in today's modern day and age, I do think that uh, that is really a privileged way of thinking because it doesn't take into account, you know, the economy and cost of living and that most households need more than one income but you know that's for another day it also <laughs> of course it also of course doesn't consider like intersex people and non-binary people it's like i know yeah they they don't have they don't have a role in this like worldview you know they don't have any space and of course queer people don't either because you know our relationships also do not fit the complementarian mold yeah and if some people are able to like do that sort of complementarian mold, like, that's fine, but it's yeah, just not, they... I, I think it's seen as such a, it's seen as such an important part, and this is being a biblical marriage and biblical womanhood, quote unquote, and this is how it's supposed to be, and this is how you be, like, the best Christian ever, it, it brings so much more harm than good. Yeah, and I mean, as something that, you know, Rachel Held Evans noted when she lived her, her year of biblical womanhood, um, mm-hmm. She doesn't, she doesn't believe that, you know, the Bible has one, one single form of being a woman, you know, and so it's like this whole thing where like they're going to Genesis 1 to say, here's the foundation for why you have to be, why you have to be submissive and speaking of which, so the actual word, let's see, let's talk about like, why, why people actually justify uh, this view with Genesis. So the word sometimes translated as helpmeet or helper suitable for him in Genesis 2.18. So this is what, how the woman for Adam is first described, um, Mm -hmm. that um, it is not good for the man to be alone, so I will make a helper suitable for him, or help me as even more conservative denominations sort of Uh translate it as. This is used to justify the view that women should submit to their husbands and affirm their leadership, uh, that they were made to be the help meet. Um, But in Hebrew, you know, 
the actual word for this is azer, azer konegdo. Most times in the Hebrew Bible, azer is used to refer to help that comes from God. The full phrase azer konegdo, which um, according to what uh, Rachel Held Evans' Orthodox Jewish friend Ahava tells her in a year of biblical womanhood, means the help that opposes, and that the rabbis explain this term like two posts of equal weight leaned against one another. They stand because of equal force. So it doesn't make sense to say that this helping role is submissive, it's partnership, and it's iron sharpening iron. Men and women mm -hmm. and everyone outside the binary were created to be in partnership and relationship with one another. Some Christians would call this mutual submission, that relationships are give and take. The only role we have to play is the role of being human. And that's, yeah. that is what, I mean, that is what the text is saying, you know? What's so maddening is it's like, no, the text is saying something really good. Why are you making it terrible? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's it's to that notion that yeah, we are we are meant to be partnered with other people and that doesn't necessarily have to be marriage or romantic partner. We are meant mm -hmm. to have friends and have to lean on each other. It's the most amazing part of our humanity and unfortunately the interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2 kind of soils it in a way, which is just awful and one thing that I learned in my research is in the CJB version of Genesis 2, it's not specified that God creates a man. Mm -hmm. God forms a person. A and dust creature. He, yes, a, a dust creature. And like he, him pronouns for this person are used, but they're still only referred to as a person, but only when Eve is created. And yeah, there's like a differentiation between them, like man, person, woman person it's not there, one better than the other yeah and there aren't there aren't gender neutral pronouns in ancient hebrew there are some you know there are starting to be some uh some people playing around with non-binary pronouns for uh modern hebrew but yeah so that's one of the reasons why even though it's like a a dust creature it's like you know they still had to use a pronoun yeah and it kind of goes into that notion like there's so many things now several thousand years later that we know about science and gender and just humanity in general that wouldn't have translated to the Bible. And that's okay. It's meant to grow. Mm -hmm. It is meant to evolve. And it's meant to, the Bible is living and breathing. Living and breathing things tend to progress over time. And many things through the Bible have progressed, thank goodness. Otherwise, I'd be very terrified to live in this world. And it's just sad that it hasn't grown and evolved when it comes to gender identity and that Genesis 1 and 2 is still used to cause so much harm to people outside of the gender binary. Yeah, I mean, you know, in Genesis 1, there's the beautiful affirmation that all of us are made in the divine image, that mm -hmm. God created male and female. And um, I guess that just is a great segue into our next topic. Yeah. You know, this um, this text, that, that verse, even though that verse is a beautiful beautiful affirmation that we're all made in divine image. Some people say because it says male and female, they use the text to say that trans folks can't exist. But, you know, uh, transgender Christian Austin Hartke has done so much great work, videos, articles, his book Transforming, um, yes. where he talks about Genesis. So please do check them out. But the gist is that the list of things created in Genesis 1, sea and land, day and night, those aren't binary. We have dusk and dawn, we have marshes and estuaries and coral reefs. You know, like, and so mm -hmm. there are people who exist in the spaces between and outside the gender binary. There's intersex people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I took the, um, at QCF, I took the breakout session with Austin Hartke. Mm -hmm. And one thing that really stuck out to me, it was such a simple picture, but it was pictures of the sky going from dawn to dusk and then from dusk into the evening. And there was just this beautiful spectrum of just color of the different times of day it isn't just day and night there's a beautiful spectrum in between and even colors in that spectrum that didn't show up to the human eye as it went through and likewise there is neither good nor bad in creation like yes i think our brains just kind of work in a very binary sort of way like i work with kids they don't have gray areas and i think that just would have been the best way to describe things being created like it was dark and then there was light and there was land and sea but the thing is there are the in-betweens but also they're all written as good there's nothing bad about the darkness there's nothing yes. bad about the light one isn't better than the other they have to coexist even with all of that gray area and with all of that spectrum and when man and woman were created and everything in between that they were considered very good one was not seen as better than the other 
Yeah, I think that's important to point out. And that also, you know, like when people look to Genesis, they always talk, they focus more on like the fall and that like human beings are, you know, inherently bad. I'm not sure how much mm-hmm. we're going to be able to get into talking about original sin, but, you know, yeah. sort of, I have some problems with it, but. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, because, you know, like God in the beginning affirmed everything as good, including mm-hmm. humanity. I mean, God didn't necessarily, in, in Genesis 3, God didn't necessarily say, you are now bad. God didn't right. say that, so. Yeah, it was a shame that was felt by Adam and Eve. It wasn't God saying, like, oh, you're bad and awful now. It was just, it was their own shame that they felt for having disobeyed. Yeah, I have so many thoughts on that original sin as well, and it just makes me so sad that it's used to Again, that's just used to harm so many people. Is like and, these and bad things happen because we sinned in the beginning. I mean, but, particularly, yeah. it's used to harm women because mm-hmm. Eve, Eve is seen as the the seductress deceiver. Oh my know, gosh! That's, yeah, that's like the the trope that so many people have put her into. Mm-hmm. You know, particularly like there's the uh, very prominent uh, evangelical complementarian John Piper, um, who <sighs> has this idea that you know women can't be trusted to lead or preach. Because Adam was created first, um, and so he he is in this leader role, and sp- specifically this like leader role gets um, shifted or out of order when uh, Eve gets deceived by the snake, and then you know is getting Adam to also eat the fruit. Um, uh. <laughs> and, you know this specifically. You know this um, this idea is especially this this view of Genesis is made more prominent because of Paul. Paul had to fucking say this. I'm going to just read it. Um, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. Or, uh, yeah, I'll go ahead and do that. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. So, um, Paul's fucking Ugh, wrong. There's so many things are wrong with this. Also, also, I love when people use that passage. Like, I definitely have my fair share of issues with Paul. But I love how people use that passage. But then in Romans at the end, he's very much like, oh, by the way, say hi to my friends Priscilla and mm-hmm. Phoebe and Junia. You know, all early leaders of the also, church who were um, women. Who, wait, so... Okay. Answer this question for me. Who taught Timothy everything he knew about the Christian faith before Paul came along? Uh, his grandmother and his mother. And it is mentioned by Paul saying, like, you, this genuine faith is in you because it dwelt in the women before you. Yeah. <sighs> Again, we're going to wrestle with Paul later, but we're just going to mm-hmm. say right now that, you know, we believe that Paul has some wisdom to say, and he also has some things to say that are wrong. So... (laughs) Yeah, and it makes me so sad because some of my favorite verses come from Paul's letters, but I'm just like, dude, you got some things horribly wrong, and people are using them to cause so much harm to women in the church. And, you know, although we've already sort of, you know, came out as people who don't believe the Bible is inerrant, you know, if you're still sort of worried about us saying Paul is wrong, we're saying that Paul is human. Exactly. You know, like, because, I mean, he didn't, he didn't know that when he was writing this, that we would be discussing it 2,000 years later. Mm -hmm. Um, He didn't know that it would be interpreted as up to the level that people interpreted the Torah. You know, he didn't realize, I mean, even when he says that scripture is God breathed, he isn't talking about his letters. And one thing that uh, we actually brought this up in church yesterday was that Paul was a man. Paul was a man who felt very zealously about his newfound belief in Christianity. And when anyone kind of zealously believes in anything, they're not, they're willing to kind of go to extremes to prove that point. And that Paul, much like many of us, we go through our own journeys of life. Paul could have gone through a journey where maybe he believed one thing, but then believed another thing about what he had initially preached. And while there isn't literal redaction in any of his letters, because they were going to just very different people, we don't know. We, We can't take the letters that someone wrote to different churches so literally like that. Uh, just one more thing to say about Paul before we move on. Um, Mm -hmm. the... The authorship of First Timothy, as well as Second Timothy and Titus, is um, considered more questionable by scholars. Like people believe that it's possible that they someone else wrote it in sort of the spirit of Paul rather than Paul himself. Um, mm-hmm. So that's something also to consider. 
that, you know, might not actually be Paul. Now I'm really excited to record the Paul episode. Because <laughs> there's so much to it. Yeah. So um, going back to, you know, sort yep. of Adam and Eve, um, it's, it's obvious that Adam is just as guilty in this situation, you know, like that, that he, it, like, it is both, it is both equally Eve and Adam that decide to mm-hmm. eat the fruit. And it's actually like, Adam is probably right beside Eve while the snake is talking. Like, he's hearing everything that she's hearing. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it's absolving men of any sort of responsibility, which we very much see mirrored in churches today, where mm-hmm. women are told, like, if like you can't cause your brother to stumble, which, first of all, I think is offensive to men because mm-hmm. I think that they have the wherewithal to control themselves and can can exert that sort of self-control but also it's putting the blame on women if a man does something to her and we see it we see that argument used because of genesis um yeah but in reality like i mean genesis one and two and you know even even three actually what i'm about Mm -hmm. to say comes from actually wait no they come from two never mind um but it's really just all about, like, it, it has an incredible vision of equality. You know, um, when Eve is first created, Adam calls Eve bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And this doesn't denote, yeah. superior, this doesn't denote superiority or ownership, but equality. He's saying, hey, look, we're made of the same stuff. And again, people take the, um, and then they became one flesh thing because they came from each other, um, literally to mean like oh this is why we like heterosexual marriage and that's Mm. not the case at all again it's the notion that we as humans need partnership with other humans whatever that may be yeah and on that note also you know the descriptive is not prescriptive just because it was a man and a woman that are in this story that you know end up um being having this union doesn't mean that that has to be any romantic union for all time you know, because mm-hmm. they don't, they didn't have an understanding of sexual orientation or even marrying for love, you know? So yeah. uh, that didn't, that those concepts didn't exist in the ancient Middle East. And so we can't just look at that and say that it's pres- prescriptive for all time. Yeah, I think the main takeaway is that both Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. And likewise, so are all of us, no matter how you identify on the amazing gender spectrum, we are all created or sexuality spectrum too. Like we all are made in the image of a divine creator. Yeah. And speaking of, I guess, God as creator, let's talk about the history of the earth. Um, Yes. And what I was, so what I was taught about it, here we go. Mm -hmm. I was taught to deny evolution, you know, from a very Uh. early point in youth group. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. by, by the time that I was taking biology in 10th grade, I'd been told by my friends in youth group, oh yeah, you're going to like be taught about evolution, but just, you know, like, just like learn the stuff and then take the test and forget about it. Like just sort of be really just, you know, cause you have to learn it for the class, but just forget about it. Um, and so mm-hmm. I was very much like that girl in biology class. I was like, why can't we learn both sides? And like, why, why are we learning this? I don't like this. And <laughs> I, I remember wearing the shirt that I had that like I got at this Christian music festival that said all life is built on Christ uh, or no, all life is built on C, not carbon, but Christ. And like, it had this like period. Okay. Yeah. So it's this like, <laughs> I mean, okay. I didn't like, I didn't even like, I didn't literally believe that, but like, I wanted to be passive. Right. Right. For sure. Yeah. But like, I mean, it's, um, you know, um, it had this, like, I called it the Christian periodic table. And I remember okay. the day that we were either first learning about evolution or like the day we were taking our test, like I wore that shirt and I like made sure like my teacher saw it. God, I gave her so much grief. I feel so bad. <laughs> Um, but the thing, the weird thing is, I also like, I had a Christian friend in that class and she was like, hey, you're being passive aggressive. Why are you doing this? And I was like, she fucking called me out. And I mean, it was just, it was all because like, I just, I had been told by my church, like, hey, you know, if you're going to be a Bible believing Christian, you have to deny this. And um, this is just, you know, we have to believe that the world was literally created in like six days and that the earth is only about um, like, I think the estimate that young earth creationists say is like 6,000 years old. Yeah, I think that's the one I've read too. Yeah, um, which just- Not 4.6 billion years. (laughs) Yeah, and all this focus on like, all this focus on like science and like the 
God, there's like the Answers in Genesis website and the Creation Museum. There's so much. I feel like the more science comes out, the more ridiculous the young Earth creationists get. Because then it's like, no, like Adam and Eve totally lived with the dinosaurs. And like they rode the dinosaurs. And it's like, no, they but didn't. I was absolutely taught that dinosaurs existed with humans. Because there's yeah. mentions of like any mentions of like weird, weird ass monsters in like the Hebrew Bible. Those are dinosaurs, apparently. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and so I was very much like a pretty staunch young earth creationist up until, I mean, even after, okay, I became LGBTQ affirming before I be, I, I, Whoa, I really? Yes. Before I stopped denying evolution. Yes. I, I became affirming before that. Um, that was, that was early 2017 that I became affirming. And then mm -hmm. Um, finally, I had my Intro to Hebrew Bible class in fall of 2017. Um, the first thing, of course, that we read was Genesis. Um, and immediately, I get the whole Genesis 1 to 2 or two different creation narratives thing, and I freak mm -hmm. the hell out um, because I'm like, wait, what does this mean? And then, um, thankfully, right, the timing was like so weirdly perfect. It was such a God thing. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I, w I had already been um, listening through um, this podcast that's created by the uh, organization called The Bible Project. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it, it's called Exploring My Strange Bible. And it's sort of a collection of sermons from um, Tim Mackey, who is the founder of The Bible Project. And I should be yeah. clear right now because we are we are fans of clarity on this show here. And so mm -hmm. I should say that Tim Mackey is not LGBTQ affirming. I used to be like a member of like this Tim Mackey fan group on Facebook. Um, and you know, this, this question was brought up a lot. It's like, oh, what does he believe about, about homosexuality? And people yeah. were able to like bring up sermons where like he specifically spoke to like his views about sexual ethics. And yeah, uh, as far as I know, as far yeah, yeah as far as I know, um, unless he has changed his position, he's not affirming. However, he is an expert when it comes to Genesis one and two. And although he sort of falls into like the maybe centrist evangelical is sort mm -hmm. of where I'd place him, um, he definitely is like no, like this. This tech, like science and faith, are not incompatible, you know, because yeah. guess what? Genesis doesn't speak to scientific questions. It speaks to functional questions. Who are we? How do we relate to our creator? And it turns out that, like, God is creating order out of chaos and not necessarily something out of nothing. I think similarly, like, I got into public school before young earth creationism was really pushed on me, fortunately, but it was that thing of, like, yeah, like, I'll learn about evolution and natural selection and origin of species, but, like, I still believe in the Bible's creation narrative. But then, as I got older, it was, like, I think someone was, like, but what if, like, God created evolution? And, like, my mind was blown because <laughs> I didn't think that was a possibility. And it's so bizarre to me because so many people I know who don't believe in evolution say, like, we didn't come from monkeys. We were created in the divine image of God. And it's, like, that is, like, kind of a... That's like a gross oversimplification of what um, yeah, I mean, natural another, selection is. Another thing that people do say is that um, like there's this whole thing that like there was no death before sin is a is a central part of like the the evangelical view of um, of Genesis one, oh, okay. one two and three like that there was no death before sin and so it's like put believing in uh, evolution like sort of throws a wrench into part of that view obviously because death. I mean, well, you know, what is what is sin? Did you know? Did did sin like that as creatures were evolving? Did sin happen? Like that's just yeah. That I guess that's something interesting to talk about. What do you think? I have actually never heard that particular perspective before. Again, like I think hmm. when I when like I started learning evolution in school, it was before I could really get thoroughly pounded with young Earth creationism because then at that point, church was going into the. Um, sexual purity talks which that's gonna be a whole other can of worms to open <laughs> later on so I never heard that perspective of it but I could see why people would believe that like oh yeah like death is a punishment for our sin and there couldn't have been death before the fall of humankind it's again I think it's just so much there's so much more overthinking that has to take place to believe that, I think. I just picture, like, that meme of the guy, like, by the whiteboard, and he's, like, trying to, like, draw lines to everything and, like, connect the strings. And that's what it seems like to me. I think that, if anything, I think believing in evolution and believing that the Earth is 4.6 billion years old and our universe is billions of years older than that just makes the power of God so much more divine. 
that it wasn't just like a zap I created this thing zap here's some water like it just makes it it makes it the story so much more powerful at least that's my opinion yeah no definitely and I think I mean I think you know you can sort of interpret sin as like you know that like God is saying to the Israelite people and you know in some ways of course to all humanity that it's like you know you've you've fallen out of of fellowship and covenant with me but like I want to invite you I want to invite you back you know I mean you know Genesis is saying like how things are in a way not necessarily even how things started it's like yes we as humans make mistakes and we mm-hmm. sometimes we fall out of fellowship with God we feel like we are tossed out of the garden but there's also the invitation to come back because there is the affirmation that yeah. everything was made good yeah and that invitation contrary to popular belief does not expire like that invitation is always there um which again i think that speaks so much more to the beauty of a redeemer than anything else would be like oh no you have to do this right now or like we're all sinners and we don't deserve heaven and everything bad that happens to us is because of the fall it's like no that's that's not it at all like that that isn't the redeeming god the graceful god that we've learned about all this time i think so many of these misconceptions of course come from you know us reading our own like modern western empirical worldview into the bible but you know in reality Mm -hmm. the bible reading it is a cross-culture cross-cultural experience We have to recognize that it is an ancient text from a very different culture from our own mm-hmm. and read it on its own terms, what the authors are saying. Um, and so, you know, I think it's interesting to just talk about some of like the language that actually, you know, things are getting lost in translation from the get-go. Like uh, Genesis comes from the Hebrew Bereshit, which, um, you know, it's translated as in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cultural connotation of the word isn't very specific. Like we think of beginning as a fixed point in time followed by chronology of events. There is a word for that in Hebrew. That isn't what's used here. According to Tim Mackey, uh, Bereshit is about as specific as the English phrase way back when. Sort of, again, drawing from what he was saying in the podcast episode that I'm going to, um, that I'm going to cite in the uh, show notes here. You know, Mm -hmm. basically, verse one is like, way back when God made what's up there and what's down here. You know, God, God didn't make, like, God didn't make a, God didn't make a sphere. Like, the Hebrew cosmology, the earth is flat. Yeah. Um, and God didn't make um, God didn't make space. God made a um, the firmament, the dome that covers over the 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 land. Um, mm-hmm. And so the dome protects us from the waters that are above. There are the waters above and the waters below. And so because of course you know considering the information that they had about the world, you know they saw that water fell from what was above. Yeah. And so they were like, oh, water's up there. Um, <laughs> And... Yeah, and for the most part, and I say this for the most part, and it's a fortunate that I have to say for the most part, we've accepted the fact that the earth is round and yes. that we are surrounded by sky and that there is space beyond our own atmosphere. And that the water comes from clouds. <laughs> exactly. Like most of us, I'd say a good majority of people believe this and we know this to be fact. And it's so bizarre to me that we can accept that as fact, even though that's not necessarily how it was seen in the Bible, but we can't accept other things as fact, like the age of the earth or mm-hmm. um, natural there's selection also, and evolution. You know, there's, yeah. yeah, there's also like the earth is immovable, therefore not rotating or orbiting the sun. Also, you know, the earth was like the center of the universe, you know, and Galileo, yeah. you know, when he challenged that, you know, if you're going to be consistent that the world was created in six days, then you got to be a flat earth or two. <laughs> yeah, it's... And again, this is just people who lived thousands and thousands of years ago. This is what they, how they thought the universe was. And it's okay to change our minds as more science becomes available. Again, it doesn't change the might of God. It doesn't change what the story is truly saying. It, yeah. if, in fact, it almost makes it more complex because it's like, wait, there's so much more to this story. It's not just this creation narrative. Yeah, and I mean, what's so interesting is that, you know, like, the truths that we can take from this text are, like, the same truths that the Hebrew authors are trying to communicate to their neighbors, because, of course, yeah. like, the there were several, you know, creation stories around at the time, including from various regions in Mesopotamia. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the um, 
some of those creation myths? Yeah, absolutely. One thing that does really need to be noted, and a lot of um, people don't bring this up a lot of the time, is that the Genesis creation story borrows a lot from other mythology around the Mesopotamian area, such as the Enuma Elish, which was the Babylonian creation story, which was very similar to our own in terms of creating light and darkness and land and sea. Like, it's pretty much almost the same creation story. The only difference is that that is seen from a polytheistic point of view. So many gods creating different things versus a monotheistic one, which in the Bible is just one god doing all of this work. And likewise, um, Genesis 2 borrows a lot from the Atrahasis epic, which was an Akkadian story. And that story had a divine garden and the role of the first man in the garden, the creation of man from a mixture of earth, divine substance, the chance of immortality. Like, these came from other creation stories in the area. And because that's what people believed. If everyone is believing a very similar thing and we're going to change it to fit our own narrative, that's that's fine but we as christians can't say like our creation story is the authority and it's the only one of its kind because it truly wasn't at the time many cultures share the same creation story with just a few details changed here and there yeah and also quite often in certain creation stories um humanity were slaves of the gods mm -hmm. and so yeah. you know a big important thing about genesis 1 uh 1 and 2 is that we are appointed as stewards over the land and over mm -hmm. the creatures um and of course that stewardship is supposed to be taking good care of things and not yep. dominating them um yeah. and depleting resources we have done violence to the earth and we need to we need to do everything we can to repair it yeah and it's it just always makes me so mad when um people who don't believe in climate change or just using the earth's resources and whatnot say like well you know what god gave us the authority to rule over the earth it's like yeah, but that doesn't mean I want to live on a rotating trash rock. Like, let's please yeah. take care of this planet. That way our children can have a clean place to live at the end of the day. Like, like you wouldn't say that about, like, a parent and a child. Like, a parent has authority over a child, so they can do whatever they want. It's like, no, there are certain things that you don't do to children. Likewise, if we have authority, quote-unquote, over the earth, we need to do our very best to take care of it. It's so funny to me because I feel like evangelical Christians should be the biggest environmentalists of them all if they are truly taking the Bible literally. Because it's like, yeah, God gave us authority. We need to keep this clean. But it's always, it's like, it's the opposite. Well, it's, I don't understand I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a part of their science-denying culture that, you know. Yeah. And it's also, oh, of course, also a big part of it is that they believe that, you know, this world is going to be destroyed and there'll be, like, the new heaven and new earth. You know, uh, we will get to that when we talk about Revelation, y'all. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so going back to sort of, you know, the different... Um, different creation stories, we are going to link in the show notes to a article that Pete Enns wrote about the Babylonian uh, creation myths. Pete Enns is firming, yay. Mm -hmm. um, he has yeah. also written several amazing books. Definitely check them out. Yes. <laughs> He's a great guy to go, go to when you're um, in terms of the uh, Hebrew Bible. And mm -hmm. um, another resource, you know, it's both cited by uh, Rachel Held Evans and Mackie as a source of their understanding of the text um, is uh, The Lost World of Genesis 1 by uh, John Walton, who, uh, as of 2019, not LGBTQ affirming, but, you know, as we, you know, on this show, we do sort of live in a bunch of different tensions. And one of them is that, you know, people who hold the position, uh, the non-affirming position on matters not related to sexuality might have some helpful things to say. Just like just like Paul, you know, had some good things to say and he also had some terrible things to say, so. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And one quote I will share from um, Pete Enns that is in Rachel Held Evans' book, um, Inspired, which is an excellent read. One thing that Peter Enns says is, it is a fundamental misunderstanding of Genesis to expect it to answer questions generated by a modern worldview, such as whether the days were literal or figurative, or whether the days of creation can be lined up with modern science, or whether the flood was local or universal. The question that Genesis is prepared to answer is whether Yahweh, the God of Israel, is worthy of worship. And I just think that is so beautifully put, is that it doesn't, it doesn't matter if the science and the biblical narrative don't exactly line up, like it doesn't matter, there's a bigger story to be told, and that is what we should be taking from it. Yes, definitely. Okay, so our next misconception we're dealing with here 
and my god this was so this was so like revolutionary to me when i first heard this question asked or i guess no not even a question it's just someone mm -hmm. remarked that you know nowhere does it say in the text that the snake is the devil that i mean you know and of course like you know what is what is the devil what does the bible say about the devil you know i guess episode by episode we're gonna you know sort of partially get into yeah. um you know and i guess here you know it's it's the serpent that is you know described as like more more crafty than any of the other wild animals mm -hmm. that's that's how the serpent is i mean described it's not described as saying that like the serpent was an evil like evil being that was originally like a a fallen angel no that's not how and so clearly like the the hebrew writers did not understand this serpent to be i don't want to say like super powerful i don't know i mean of course like the the evangelicals make satan out to be like super powerful right like yeah it's so weird because it's like you really believe that god is like all powerful but then you're letting so much power go to like this whole other being and like you know the it's more from dante than anything else <laughs> yeah yeah i like as i've been doing more research about the notion that like the snake isn't necessarily the devil or a super powerful being like i i was actually kind of shocked to learn that as well because we're not taught to look into the context of it we're kind of taught a very specific story of genesis and i definitely grew up with like the picture bible where it shows like an evil looking snake talking to eve and we were always taught that that was like a representation of Satan. There is also, of course, particularly what I was taught is that there is a prophecy, um, Genesis 3.15, I will, that God is putting enmity between the snake and the woman. Um, and so this is viewed as that when Mary gives birth to Jesus, that is, that is the way to, for Jesus to strike Satan's head. And so that is, that is like the prophecy. So like, but it, I don't know, I guess, like, huh. you know, outside of, it's like, no, but the thing is, when the Hebrew writers wrote that, they didn't know Jesus, they didn't know Mary, like, they didn't, mm -hmm. they didn't know that, and so it's like, what, what, how did they, I'm curious about how they would have understood it, um, and I, I didn't really get to that point in my research, but it's definitely yeah. something I'm curious about. Yeah, and I, I think that seems to be kind of the case with many Jewish scholars, is there's kind of different interpretations of what the serpent is mm -hmm. is it a literal snake or the snake could be a metaphor for something else one interpretation um says that the serpent could represent sexual desire um and another interpretation says that the serpent is an example of yetzerhara which is the inclination to do evil while violating god's will but it's again it, there is contention whether or not it's a literal snake that told eve to eat the fruit or if it was a metaphor for something else like something more mental, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of different ways to think about it. Um, and we'd mm -hmm. love to hear your thoughts. Um, yeah, absolutely. To this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, I guess in future like episodes, we can get into this, but I mean, you know, the the Hebrew Bible vision of the, the what what we think of as the devil, um, you know, the, the Hebrew phrase is hasatan, um, which means the the adversary, the accuser, the deceiver, that's sort of all those sort of connotations of words. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess like the way I think, of, I mean, the way that I personally think about the devil is that maybe it's not yeah. actually like a one specific being, but it's like there is this sort of, I don't know, force of evil. So that's sort of maybe the per the, the serpent is the personification of that. So. Yeah, because there are forces of evil in this world. Like, people do awful things or questionable things all the time, and there isn't a literal serpent or literal anything of that matter deceiving them. It's people have free will to do what they want, and sometimes that free will leads to unfortunate consequences. And could that could kind of be like how, like, I, that was perhaps personified as a serpent in Genesis. Definitely. Now that we've talked through these sort of like a bunch of sort of misconceptions that, you know, we, we were taught about the text when we were in the evangelical church, uh, we want to sort of talk about like, what is the text saying kind of beyond those misconceptions? You know, we've sort of already covered mm -hmm. like Imago Dei, we are all created in the image of God, the divine image. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess um, other things we sort of want to cover are like the importance of rest and maybe just a little bit more about like caring for creation, environmental justice. And then of course, yeah. whatever you would want to add, Anna. Um, yeah, absolutely. There Again, there's so much more to the creation story than just the literal creation story. And so many lessons can be gleaned from it, even if it isn't taken literally, which I think is awesome. You know, there are these, uh, in the Jewish tradition, there's uh, Midrash. Uh, Midrash, um, in uh, in Rachel Held Evans' book, Inspired, uh, she describes Midrash as something that, you know, struck her initially as something of a cross between biblical commentary and fan fiction. You know, you see, you sort of, you, you look into the story and you, you start to like give more life onto the characters and the concepts and, you know, sort of loop in your own sort of interpretation of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, in the Jewish tradition, there are many rabbis and Jewish scholars and teachers who have, you know, imagined, um, I brought their imagination to the story of Genesis and to other stories in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, And so we invite you to sort of look into that and see what that might, uh, to see where that might take you. Because we, some of the concepts we went, we mentioned come from uh, Midrashic interpretations. Um, Yes, absolutely. And it's just so important because again, it, it kind of goes away from the literal text, but we're able to use our own for lack of a better word, kind of use our own imaginations when it comes to interpretation because there is something bigger to that story and we can kind of imagine, oh, this is maybe what this person was thinking during the time or this is what this person maybe was writing about. And it doesn't, it's not, I think sometimes a lot of evangelicals are afraid to do that because there's that notion of, ah, if you change the Bible, that's bad. But it's not changing the text, it's just interpreting humanizing it yeah and yeah. interpreting it yeah i mean i think it's it's engaging with the bible as literature in a very interesting way you know um again another great quote from inspired we've been instructed to reject any trace of poetry myth hyperbole or symbolism even when those literary forms are virtually shouting at us from the page via talking snakes and enchanted trees it's like we get to we get to engage these as stories and because you know that's what god does god tells us stories god stoops to their people using ancient literary genre and stories to adjust issues of identity and purpose uh, the fancy word for that is divine ago- divine accommodation mm-hmm. so yeah it's that notion that god will meet humanity where we are at um we meet god in the narrative the narrative itself while important it's it's it gets us closer to god and one thing that rachel held evans also said in inspired um, when she talked about Madrashic interpretation is it helps me recover some of the curiosity and wonder with which I approached the Bible as a child, which I just think is absolutely incredible. It's taking something that is taught so legalistically and is taught so much like this is the word of God, thus saith the Lord. This is exactly what needs to be believed. But it's like, no, like, let's bring that sense of wonder. Let's bring that sense of play. Let's never stop learning and wondering and confronting this. Yes, absolutely. I guess we sort of talked about this when we were talking about history of the earth sorts of things, but, you know, I think it's interesting. Another thing the text is saying that's different from other creation narratives is that God doesn't need a temple because God made the whole universe a temple. Yeah, that like God is with us and for us and that is always true because God is over everything. Yeah, we're not, we aren't separate from God. God is created us and met us where we are at and it kind of lends to that personal relationship I guess is that God isn't just something that is unattainable but God is in every part of our world and in every part of humanity and again it kind of harkens back to the fact of taking care of the earth like if you truly believe God created the world and everything in it we need to take care of that because the divine Mm -hmm exists in the land and in the sea and in the environment and Um, I think that is the most respectful thing is to take care of that creation yeah sort of bringing together these concepts of like you know relationship with God and then relationship to the earth um you know after after God created you know in the in the story of Genesis 1 after God creates uh God rests um after after all that they've done and you know in the way in in a sense i think that's also giving like 
the land to rest after you know all this all this work of um creation and um you know and that's why of course in the jewish tradition there is the sabbath the sabbath command that mm-hmm. on the seventh day you uh you shall do no work you shall rest and um the sort of idea of like rest goes into like a bunch of other um laws in the hebrew bible as well um this this you know the the tradition of the sabbath is also continued and sort of like put on put on steroids in a way in uh, Leviticus 25. Uh, you know, I know Leviticus for a lot of queer folks is bad, but there's also some cool stuff in it too, like the year of Jubilee. Uh, it, the year of Jubilee was a year of rest for the land. Like they didn't like over harvest it, you know, they just, they took what they needed and also give uh, to the to the, the poor as well. Um, mm-hmm. And they, uh, all slaves were freed from, you know, even if they still owed debt and um, the year of Jubilee, I guess, according to the text, I believe it's about every 50 years or so. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, and that's because like seven times seven, 49. So, you know, lots of, lots of seven yeah. touch there. Yeah. It's important that like, you know, one of the foundations in this text uh, of Genesis one and two, because actually I think the part where it says God rested is in Genesis two. Yeah. Um, it's, it's sort of, it's very important that actually a central part of this text is that like it establishes uh, the reason for the Sabbath and the reason that rest is holy, you know, because God consecrated yeah. the only, yes, right. The only day of in Genesis that is holy is the day where God rested. God, I called everything else mm-hmm. go, good. God, God called the day of rest holy. Yeah. And that yeah. adds to the importance. It's the importance of rest. It's the importance of being able to take that time and take that break period, which is important, not only for our mental health, but again, it's to bring us closer to the divine in that sort of way. Yeah, and it reminds us, even though we are tasked with this important responsibility of being stewards over the earth and allowed to create and, you know, be just as, you know, our image of God, it's like we create, we are like small creators in a way, but it's Mm -hmm. like we also have to remember that we are human beings and not human doings, and so... I I like that. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, I heard, I'm pretty sure I heard Laura Jean Truman tweet that once. Yes. And I've also heard the saying of like, even God rested the seventh day, take that day for yourself. Like I've definitely heard that rhetoric as well. And I'm like, I can absolutely get behind that. I like this interpretation. Yeah. I mean, it sort of reminds us that like, you know, a lot of Christians try to say that like the Bible and Christianity is very capitalist. It's supported by capitalism. And I'm like, actually... No, it isn't. Like, because, not at all. You know, the Levitical law says not to profit off the blood of your neighbor. And in reality, under capitalist society, specifically like global capitalism, we are profiting off the blood of our neighbor just about every day. It's mm-hmm. not really something that we can avoid. Yeah. And again, as Christians, I think we are called to do the best we can with what we have when it comes to that. And I'm sure that could be a whole other topic in and of itself is being ethical consumers in making. And again, I know that that's such a huge privilege to be able to be an ethical consumer and to Mm -hmm. live in an environmentally friendly and frugal way that's such a huge privilege for so many of us but it's that notion of as christians we are called to take care of the earth and to take care of our fellow humans Mm -hmm. there's no way that taking care of our fellow humans and living in a rigorously capitalist society go hand in hand it never has it, it for a lot of people it makes a sabbath impossible yeah. Except that, that it take no, not even that's not a privilege. It takes that divine right away from them. Absolutely. And I think we also just live in a country and I was definitely in an industry where it's like hustle culture is seen as a good thing. Like, oh, you're working three jobs and you haven't had a day off in three months? Like, that's good. Like, why aren't you working more? Why aren't you doing more? And it's it just bears this fruit of never being good enough mm-hmm. when Meanwhile, you have God who created the universe and created things and said they were good and created humans, said they were very good and then took a day of holy rest. Yeah, I guess uh, sort of the final thing we wanted to discuss was like why God is referred to the plural in some places in, yeah. the, in the Hebrew in this text. Um, you know, I actually, I only, when Anna texted me about it, I was like, oh, I didn't realize that the word Adonai uh, the word for Lord is actually plural. Like I just yeah. thought that was the word for Lord because that's the word that's... <laughs> yeah, and to be quite fair, um, I'm in a clobber passage Bible study right now and this was brought up 
and coincidentally we were covering Genesis 1 and 2 a few days ago so I was able to take plenty of notes and that was brought up and then it's also brought up like we created um man or humans in our image which is just like I always knew that that was the text but it never put two and two together and then learning that Adonai meant God in the plural was just baffling like what sort of ideas does that bring up now? Especially, I mean, especially because, like, a, such a central idea, particularly in Judaism, is that God is one, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so, yeah, that's definitely a curiosity. I know something that I heard in, I don't know where, and I probably wouldn't be able to find it, but in one of um, Tim Mackey's uh, podcasts, either the Exploring My Strange Bible or the Bible Project podcast, he talks about uh, this concept of the divine council, a sort of assembly of angels that, huh. or like, or like, you know, celestial beings, whatever we want to call them, that sort of is with, um, with God. This divine council shows up in other places too, like in the book of Job. Yeah, so that's something to, to consider uh, as maybe being part of the us. Uh, maybe not, I don't think it would be part of the plural Adonai, but, um, it's definitely some really amazing food for a thought. <laughs> yeah, um, I looked up, um, you know, whether there were any Jewish perspectives about, you know, like, who was God addressing when God said, let us create uh, mm-hmm. humanity in our image. It appears that, that, or at least the particular resource that I'm reading doesn't believe it's the, uh, what what this author says is the tribunal. I think that's probably similar to, like, the divine council idea that, that Mackie was talking about. Um, mm-hmm. um, in the following verse, it does say, and God created. It does not say, and they created. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, you know, a singular thing. Yeah, it's interesting. God was teaching us, I'm sorry, I'm reading from the article, which I will link to in the show notes. God was teaching mm-hmm. us a great lesson in proper decision-making protocol. God did this at the risk of people misconstruing the verse to mean that God had help. There's also the idea that God is employing the majestic plural, which like, as in like the the royal we in in our sort of modern language, we say the, the royal we. Um, mm-hmm. That is, yeah, I guess probably, that's probably how my church would probably interpret it. That like it's God using our sort of royal we. Yeah, I think that was how my church would have interpreted it as well, but Again, just, I did not know any of this until learning about it. So it's definitely I mean, some good gosh, food for thought. I, I love looking into the original language because you just, you learn so much more. Like something I think that I didn't even bring up earlier is like, you know, it with the, with the concept of God creating order out of chaos, there's, you know, there's so much richness in the original language to sort of represent that. Like in, I guess the first verse uh the phrase in english is normally formless and void but really in the in the hebrew which is a tohu vavohu which i don't know how to spell that i just heard tim Mackey say it i'm hoping i'm pronouncing it like he does but yeah tohu vavohu which sort of roughly translated is like wild and waste and so you know there's a Mm. sense of like chaos you know whatever it's sort of this this wilderness and then god you know once god creates things god says that they're tov which is good. Um, and so there's this sort of interesting, like, rhyming in the language there, tohu vavohu tov. And so that, I mean, that brings out more how much, like, particularly Genesis 1 is like a poem. It almost makes it more beautiful in a way, too. That It's like there's this beautiful poetry and beautiful language attached to it. It's not necessarily meant to be a, this is the way the universe worked, but it's, it's more than that, and there's more of a message to glean from that than just a creation story. No, definitely. Although this, you know, is this is hardly extensive, I guess. We're going to, you know, be linking to more resources in the show notes. Mm-hmm. So we've gone through a lot of different topics today, and this is just from two chapters in the Bible, the first two chapters of the Hebrew Bible. And a little and bit of three. <laughs> and a little bit of three, and... Perhaps at some point we'll go more in depth into chapter three, including the fall of humankind and how that has just been used as a tactic to harm people because, oh, has it been used as a tactic to harm people? Perhaps we will go into that into another episode, but for now, this is where we will leave all of you. Plenty of food for thought. We would also love to hear 
your thoughts. What did you grow up believing about Genesis and the creation of the world? What interpretations do you have? Is there anything that maybe you've learned in your own studies and in your own perspective? We would love, love, love to hear about that. So please feel free to send us a message on any of our social media about that. Um, we are very excited to announce uh, that our 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 guest for the podcast uh, for Pride Month is Alicia Crosby. Yes, um, you might you might know her as a speaker at, at Evolving Faith and a contributor to the New York Times bestseller A Rhythm of Prayer, uh, which Sarah Bessie edited cur- and curated. Uh, so I'm just so thrilled. Um, for those that are wondering, I met her because uh, we attended the same college, not at the same time. I ended up, you know, friending on Facebook because we had a few mutual friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the Women's College Connection, really strong, and I'm very grateful for it. So I'm so excited to see uh, what we talk about because she has a lot of wisdom related to queer Christianity and deconstruction and decolonization. Um, and she just recently graduated from Duke. So it's going to be such an amazing thing to have her on the show. Yeah, we are so, so excited to have her on as our June interview. And we'll be keeping you posted more as that date approaches. In the meantime, please be sure to follow us wherever you can listen to podcasts. We're on Spotify. We are on Anchor. We are now on Apple Podcasts, too. So please, yes. please, please rate and review because that really does help boost us in the algorithm and if you don't have access to those that's okay we are putting the audio on youtube as well you can look up reclaiming the garden podcast also be sure to follow us on instagram at reclaiming the garden or on twitter at rt garden podcast that's where we post our updates and we also post other resources as well uh we just want to thank everyone who has followed the uh, podcast page so far we're so grateful for you and can't wait to be able to engage with you more uh and hear more about y'all's stories we'll see y'all bye bye